Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this episode, Maxi Mackie, also of Label Sessions, talks to John Sills. John is a leader in customer-led business and innovation, pushing boundaries for customers at HSBC, and now the foundation, exploring new perspectives to reconnect with what customers really value. His goal is to make life better for customers, and in his latest book, The Human Experience, he explores how doing just this can create a more successful organization. Let's hear more from John and Maxine. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, could you um, introduce yourself to the Label Sessions audience, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm John Seals, I'm managing partner at uh, the Foundation. So we're a customer growth consultancy that helps organizations to be commercially successful by putting a customer at the heart of the business. Uh, and I'm also the author of The Human Experience, which came out in February 2023, all about how to make life better for customers whilst having a commercially successful organization. Are you very much known for being a leader, helping people create these kind of more human organizations and ultimately, as you were saying, kind of make life better for customers? And in the book, you mentioned uh, the human experience, which you launched this year. Um, it's um, even being put as Book of the Month by Malcolm Gladwell's next book, um, Big Idea Club. So could you maybe tell us a bit about the book and convert? why we're like you know what was special about 2023 to to release it yeah absolutely so uh, i think the um so the book is i suppose a labor of love for quite a few years not that i really knew it i've been writing about customer experience for quite a long time and then around 2021 i kind of thought i should bring this all together in a in a book actually but ultimately the the, the big belief and the big idea behind it is that over the last 20 years we've had all this amazing new technology that we've been able to use as organizations for our customers um, but actually I think we've spent a lot of time perfecting the functional experience so trying to do things in more ways more quickly more cheaply than ever before but at doing that we've lost that kind of emotional experience that human experience it's the thing that really matters to people because actually for all this improvement that we've seen customers are no more satisfied when they were 20 years ago in fact people feel they've got less good relationships with organizations now than they have that's true in the US and in the UK and in Australia and everywhere you look around the world these relationships between customers and organizations are starting to fall apart it's because we've lost that kind of human connection so the book is really about how you can kind of harness the technology we've got and use all of this great uh, you know new ways of working that really helps to be more efficient but in a way that helps you stay human as an organization in how you deal with people in the conversations you have in the products and services you create and how you really understand people. In terms of 2023, I think I got lucky because actually it just takes around a year and a half for the book to be published once it's been finished. Um, but it happened to come out just around the time ChatGPT was entering all of our consciousness. And I think that makes it a really interesting time to have this debate around the role of technology in still creating kind of human relationships and the human experience. That was um, really interesting, John, around customer experience and satisfaction. Has it really changed in 20 years? And if I understand correctly, it's it's maybe starting to dip. Do you think that, like, what do you think, because I, I know from your kind of um, advisory work too in this space, do you think leaders in big organizations are, are aware of that? Do they think that, you know, their customers experience do you think anyone thinks they're neglecting their customer experience? No, I think on the whole, 
I think generally people have good intent and most organizations that I know of or I've been in or I've worked with, the people are generally good people wanting to do good things and no one would want to ever cause deliberate harm to customers. But what happens when you become part of an organization is you start to see the world from the inside out. You know, you're closer to your own business, your own regulators, your own colleagues, you're surrounded by your own products and services. It makes it really hard to remember what's, what life is like as an actual customer. And then this is exacerbated by this thing I call the myth of customer feedback, which is we've never had more information coming into businesses about customers than we have now. You know, we've got all of the, this kind of epidemic of survey requests, all of these, uh, you know, surveys that you get asked to fill in and NPS surveys. And that's useful, but it's only focused on one area of the business. And if you think of your customer's life like a wedge, at one end, you've got all the things that really matter to them, their real world world and life, their friends, family, hopes, dreams, ambitions, their job. And right at the end of that is a tiny little thin bit, which is your organization. But 99% of all of that customer research coming into organizations is at the thin end of the wedge. What do you think about us? What do you think about our service? What do you think about our product? Would you recommend us? And this convinces leaders that they're close to what matters to their customers. But in actual fact, they're only really close to customers' opinions of their business. And that's a very subtle but a very significant difference. So I think there's good intent from leaders in organizations who believe they're close because of this data. But in actual fact, they're quite far removed. And then it's very easy to give in to the commercial pressures that are put on you without that kind of real conviction to trailblaze on behalf of customers. That's really interesting. I think it's where I think product leaders and managers can fall into the trap of their perfectly designed products for customers and the customer journey that they've designed. But that's not always how customers necessarily use something or interact with something. So I think it's the disconnect between, I think, the kind of objectives, designs, and then the, the reality. I think that's right. And I think we're seeing that more and more with digital journeys, actually. Um, because I think in the past, when things were more physical, I guess, in terms of their journeys, more tangible, people tended to use their own product a little bit more. People tended to be able to uh, imagine what that experience was going to be like. And people accepted, leaders accepted that the journeys were probably fallible and that things would go wrong. So you needed to be there to help. Now, I think since we've seen far more customer journeys become digital, which has obviously created great efficiency and convenience for customers, there's kind of this interesting thing happening in organizations. One is that I think a lot of leaders don't really understand the digital journey that their customers are going on, and they particularly don't understand how that's been created. But there's also this belief that, well, it's perfect. Like, it's a digital journey. Like, there's nothing to go wrong. It's been designed perfectly. And what I'm finding and what we see is that customers actually, when there is a problem, it's much harder now to get help because people don't understand what's gone wrong and people don't haven't thought that there would be a problem anyway. So you now fall into this kind of pit of despair of customers and it takes two or three months to get anything sorted because people have stopped being able to understand, understand the process. So yeah, I think it's a really interesting area. And from the companies I've studied, the organizations that have the most, um, customer-led leadership and are most customer-led and are actually the most commercially successful are the ones where the leaders use their own product all the time as much as possible uh, rather than just relying on the data that they see coming through. I think that's, um, that's great advice for, 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 for leaders. Um, let me ask you this. So what's your view in technology? Because I think I read somewhere that you said something around you feel that organizations have fallen back on technology as a crutch for efficiency and to drive efficiency rather than to 
complement, I guess, the human experience and the human elements at play. Could you, could you break this down a bit for me and help me understand? I'm thinking around how can leaders avoid this trap of like technology proficiency where they have so many kind of a competing drivers in the business? Yeah, I think so much of it comes back to really understanding what matters to your customers, starting with that and then applying the technology to help deliver that rather than starting with the technology and saying we're going to build something and then we're going to persuade customers to use it. So when I was at HSBC, I used to look after customer experience globally there. I was head of customer innovation. We I ended up accidentally launching our first mobile app. Uh, and it came about because a security device had been sent out by the IT team. This is about 10 years ago. So all of our customers now have one of these little secure key calculators they had to use to log on to the banking. And customers hated it. And our digital satisfaction fell about 30% in a month. It was really, really problematic. Um, so we went and looked at the data and we saw that 91% of customers only ever logged on to check their balance and log off again. And we'd given them this security that was as if they were always going on and making £10,000 payments. Because my balance, you know, I could tell you it now, it means everything to me and nothing to you. You can't really do anything with it. Um, so we decided we were going to try and launch this app that was a really simple app. You know, it was going to be called Fast Balance. It would just let people check their balance. It wasn't as good and as full an app as the likes of Ping It and other apps that were out at the time. But it would allow people to do the one thing they wanted to do quickly. And we got it out in six weeks. We had a little team off the side. We were told not to go to any committees and just kind of get it done. Got it out. It ended up being the most used banking app in the UK uh, for the couple of years after it was being used. Six, seven million, million people using it every single week. And it was a real lesson to me that actually if we just built the best app we possibly could using the technology that was available, it would have had all these different features on it and it would have taken about a year and a half to get out. But instead, just by focusing on the thing that really mattered to customers and then looking at what technology is available to deliver that, we delivered something far more quickly that customers really benefited from. And the other app carried on. That still arrives a year or so later, so it's not to stop doing that. But it's starting with understanding what really, really matters to your customers then working out new and better ways to deliver that value to them, but in that order. I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier around the wedge and both the thick end of the wedge as well as like the small end of the wedge. I think you really need kind of as a leader insight across the two. So let me ask you this, like thinking about your experience at kind of at HSBC and, and I think you're the only person that accidentally launched, I think, the most successful banking app in the UK, John. Uh, I, I can't let that go unnoticed. And advice would you give to leaders who are trying to create better experiences for their customers and colleagues and and how they do things internally i'm thinking like other things leaders should be you think leaders should be stopped doing or start doing you mentioned like the most success some of the most successful customer kind of focused organizations and leaders that use their own products um i guess if i challenge you to say what do you think what advice would you give to leaders of what they should kind of a stop doing or start doing to build very kind of a, a customer-led and human-led organizations yeah they, i mean there's a whole i'll try and pick a couple there's there's quite a few things but i think that the first most important thing is is going to meet real people going to meet your real customers in their environment uh you know don't rely on the powerpoints and the pdfs and the data that just gets given to you um Frankly, often leadership teams, if they see something that's an inconvenient truth, they'd rather question the methodology than accept that inconvenient truth. You know, they'll start talking about the sample size, right? 
So the best and most effective thing you can do is just go and spend time with real people in their environment and see how they interact with your product. That that is different to a lot of what we see in organizations of like customer closeness programs where you end up phoning a customer because they filled in a survey or they've had a complaint or there's been a problem. Because even that is focused around you and your product. So that, that would be the first thing I would do would be to go out, spend real time with real people really regularly. You know, uh, Guy Singh Watson, who's the uh, founder of Riverford, uh, when I spoke to him about this, he, he got quite angry about it. Uh, and I had to take out a lot of his expletives in the book. And he kind of said, look, if, if leaders aren't regularly spending time every single week with their customers, what on earth could they be doing that could be more important? And I thought that was a really good way of putting it. You know, we, it seems to be like this extra thing now to leaders. Oh, try and have a day where you're going to speak to customers. So that'd be the first thing. Go actually and spend time with customers. The second thing I'd suggest people do would be when they're looking at their data to understand customers, focus on the actuals rather than the averages. Uh, you know, it's very common in big organizations to average large data sets. So what's our average call waiting time, for example? Uh, you know, what's our average MPS score? What's our MPS score? But the thing with the average call waiting time is that's kind of an experience no one's having. Everyone's either waiting less or more uh, than that. And the average doesn't move much if you've got a large data set. If you're talking about thousands of calls every week. Now, what's more interesting is, well, look at the 10% of people that waited more than half an hour. What happened there? You know, what happened in those situations? What can we learn from those two? But also, let's look at the 10% of people that got straight through on the phone. That's great. Let's celebrate that success. Let's understand how they did that. Let's showcase that and build on that as well. So really, really getting behind the data. Um, and then the third thing I'd just suggest is, is really thinking about the empowerment of your team and the freedom of your team. Because the organizations that do this really well, when it comes to leadership, actually the best thing the leaders do is give their team the freedom to go and make things better for their customers rather than being more draconian and create a process that people have to follow. I was going to ask you about common misconceptions or challenges organizations face when trying to become more customer-led, both in their kind of internal process and other things. What are some bits of advice to help overcome these kind of common misconceptions or challenges? Because I think that's a really interesting thing you've just said around empowering teams to deliver customer outcomes rather than maybe I understood it from my past life around picking up a, a bit of the process but can you um delve into that a bit because I think sometimes it can feel quite overwhelming I guess it's like which might be a misconception in itself yeah that's right I mean so the I don't think it is in a way because it's the natural you know, the way organizations work often follows a logic you know, as an organization grows, it grows by being consistent, by being able to systematically and repeatedly do the same thing at an increasingly greater scale. So the natural inclination there, it makes sense to build more process around that, uh, you know, to have more structure, to have more rigid rules, particularly in regulated environments, because the logic stands that the more you do that, the more repeatable and systematic you can be and the bigger you can grow. Makes sense. Um, however, you know, and I suppose it's this thing called uncommon sense. In reality, it works the other way, uh, in many organizations at least. Because as you start to over-process, you start to kind of make everything very average. You start to take away people's uh, empowerment, people's freedom, people's ability to spot things that might need to change and to, uh, you know, make decisions in the moment. You know, you'll be very used to this when you phone up 
um, you know, if you've got a problem and you phone up and both you and the person on the other end of the phone, they know what the right thing to do is, but they end up saying, I would if I could, but I can't, like, I'm just not able to, I'm not able to do it. And I often tell this story about a chair that I bought, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do the short version of the story, but I was trying to buy this big chair, I had quite a small car and ended up going back and forward with the person in the shop trying to work out how I was able to get the chair home. And he was so rigid with his processes, you know, I wasn't able to take it outside to try it before I bought it. If I bought it, I wasn't able to then take it outside to get a refund. Uh, if I bought it and left it in the stop shop, I had to take it straight away. I wasn't allowed to, you know, take it, uh, leave it in the shop while I take my family home and clear out the car. And then eventually when I did manage to buy it, he said he would carry it to the car with me, but only as far as the door because he wasn't insured to carry it outside the door to the car park. Now, all of those things are following the process that he's been given. But ultimately, I'm trying to pay them money as a shop. And his job should be to help me buy that as easily as possible. So you start to lose this, this kind of common sense as part of it. So I think that I think that's a really big part, this being able to step back, see the world from the outside, and you know, let your people uh, have, have that kind of freedom. But, but specifically, I think I'd look at three probably misconceptions one is about you know don't just listen to what your customers say that's not what being customer-led is it's not listening to what your customers say because they don't necessarily know what the right answer is or what they want uh, but it is about observing them there's a misconception about return on investment that to make things better for customers you know you have to spend money and therefore you've got to prove the return on investment whereas in actual fact that customer experience is quite expensive to provide uh, so actually making things better for customers will make you a more efficient organization. And the third is this misconception about loyalty, that once you've got customers, they're going to stay loyal to you so you don't have to bother trying, whereas in fact that's all about usefulness. So there's a lot of these misconceptions, but they all come back to are you able to maintain your outside perspective on the world and on your business rather than being uh, kind of sucked into this inside-out perspective instead. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. I was wondering if there were any anecdotes, maybe from the book or from your experience around this kind of outside in perspective, that's really kind of framed your thought leadership in customer centricity. Because um, I'm, I'm sure there's been kind of a, maybe advice or things that you've seen or conversations you've had along the way that's made you see things in a kind of a, a different way. Um, yeah, and I was just wondering if you had any kind of a anecdotes on that around framing your thought leadership lots really i suppose that because the, the the book is is kind of really quite filled with with stories um you know i think the one of the ones i often talk about early on is this story about the new day newspaper uh which was launched in february 2016 and it was launched by trinity mirror and they decided they were going to launch a brand new print newspaper uh and you know launching a new print newspaper in 2016 is kind of pretty bold really um, because there's not, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of call for it. But their CEO went on the radio that morning and said, "Look, we're really confident in this. We've asked thousands of customers for their opinions. You know, we haven't just come up with this idea overnight. We're going to launch it." 
Now, the CEO was back on the radio three months later on the day that they decided to close down the New Day newspaper. Uh, and his language was really interesting. He said, you know, we couldn't persuade enough people to take the product. Ultimately, what people said they wanted and what they actually wanted were two different things. And I thought that language was really interesting because it showed this kind of first misconception of if you just go and ask customers what they want, they'll tell you what they what they want. You know, clearly what's happened there is they've gone to the focus group and they've said, look, are you fed up with the kind of 24-hour news cycle? They've gone, yeah. Would you rather have something more curated? Yeah. Would you like that delivered to you every day? That'd be amazing. Would you like it in a kind of nice old paper form rather than looking on everything on your screen? Yeah, absolutely. You can see how by asking those questions in a focus group, that leads you to a very logical answer of let's bring back the newspaper. But the reality is, I would absolutely love to sit and look through a newspaper every day, but I've got two little kids to get ready for school. You know, so I'm kind of having arguments with my wife. I'm trying to get shoes and over here, there's porridge in hair. You know, I've got email coming through. You know, that first hour and a half is absolute chaos. And having a newspaper drop through the door, I would look at it. It would probably end up in the recycling or one of the kids would be ripping it up. And, and it just doesn't fit with you observe people's behavior. So I always found that quite an interesting story that kind of gets to the heart of actually what leadership really need to do to be able to really understand what matters to their customers and the dangers if you if you don't and the ability and i get and what i really hear there is it's not just about interrogating data it's really kind of about understanding within the context because how you frame a question is going to give you a certain type of answer so you can lead the witness and not necessarily understand where things kind of are fitting to 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 their life um i think it's a really interesting lesson for leaders too and people were in the kind of a new product development space that how we're, I think the reality of how people are actually using the kind of a perfect systems and processes you've designed it, it, it might be a bit of a shift from what what's you know on your screen yeah I think I think that's exactly right and I think that's then if I maybe share one other story that's then got to be uh, compounded or combined with a really clear vision for what you want your customer experience to be one of the biggest challenges we see lots of organizations and leaders having is they say we want to give a good experience, but they don't they don't really think about what that experience looks like to them. And if they do, they maybe follow some kind of generic framework that exists that I'm not I'm not really a huge fan of. The organizations that do this the best are the ones that have a clear view on what matters to their customers, but also know what their strengths are as a business. And they also know where they want to be against their alternatives, competitors and alternatives, and where they want to be in the future world. You know, because there's going to be some things you want to be unique on and distinct on, but there's going to be some things you're going to be competitive and, and uncompetitive. So I think the organization that do this best have this vision and and ambition. And the best experience I've had was with Swiss Rail, you know, three years ago, just before COVID, traveling, I was working with a client who uh, was um, a run rail holidays to kind of rail holidays across Europe so I was on the first two days of a 10-day tour with about 30 octogenarians so it's like a big tour group of us and we got on the train we were going from Geneva to uh, a, a final destination we had to change at Zurich and 10 minutes after the train leaves the train breaks down and it stops and I was kind of delighted because one of my colleagues was Swiss so I started whatsapping her straight away about typical Swiss inefficiency um but then the, within two minutes, something strange happened. The train guard came down and the train guard said, look, I'm really sorry. I know you're a big group traveling through our country. The train's broken down. 
um, you might miss your connection in Zurich. But I'm going to find out what's going on. I'm going to keep you updated and I'll be back as soon as I know more. So he goes off. Two minutes later, we get a phone call from the head of operations at Swiss Rail. I know your train guard's going to look after you. I'm really sorry about what's happened. If you need anything at all, here's my direct number. You just give me a call and we'll help you work out where you need to go next. Ten minutes after that, the train starts moving again. Train guard, true to his work, comes back down, says to us, right, this is what the problem was. This is why the train broke down. This is how we fixed it. We're not anticipating any more problems between now and Zurich. But when we get to Zurich, you are going to miss your train. So this is the next train you need to get. This is the platform that it goes from. And it's a big, complicated station. So I'm going to have someone there to meet you when we get there. So true to his word, we put it to Zurich station. Door opens right at the door of our carriage. Is a member of staff waiting with an umbrella. We follow her around all the way to Zurich station. It's quite a big, complicated station to platform 14, where the next train is already waiting for us. They've already reserved us a carriage on the new train because we had one reserved on the old train. And as we got on, they gave us tea and coffee vouchers to apologize for the inconvenience. And we ended up getting into our final destination about 25 minutes late. Now, if I get into London 25 minutes late on my commute every day, I'm delighted. I'm high-fiving the other commuters. Like I don't know what to do with all this extra time that I've got. And the difference really, apart from a bit of infrastructure, is his ambition. You know, there was real ambition, that team on the Swiss Rail train, real ambition and a real vision for what they expected their customer experience to be like. And they were going to deliver that outcome because they weren't going to be able to deliver the promise, make it as easy as possible. And that's so different from so many organizations that are trying to do the right thing, but actually just lack that mental image of but what does really brilliant look like for us. So quite a long anecdote, but I think that's the other big thing that I see in these organizations and leaders in organizations. They have this ambition or they have this clear vision that then defines all of the other decisions they're going to make. So I've learned two things. Firstly, um, I'm getting trains in the wrong country. And secondly, it feels like very much, for me, what underpins that is it's policy and empowerment of people to deliver the vision rather than the process and steps. So clearly, getting a Swiss train versus buying a chair in London was a, was kind of a wildly different experiences on, on, on the scale. Yeah, and, and the thing is, if you have that vision and you clearly articulate it through the organization, you know, and we use something called customer promises to do that, if you if you clearly articulate it and you give people a bit of structure, you know, structured flexibility, I call it, other people call it you know, freedom in a framework, you know, a little bit of structure, but then you allow people to be their natural selves. It creates a better experience. It creates a more human experience, but it creates happier colleagues as well, you know, creates colleagues that are happier in their work because they feel they've got that that bit of autonomy you know there's a great book called drive by dan pink and he talks about kind of autonomy and competence and relatedness and the things that people really need to be motivated in their job you know this is what creates a happy human organization that creates a happy human customer experience and it comes from those leaders that are able to kind of give that structure but then recruit really well and let people go and do their things as soon as you over process you end up with kind of frustrated customers and you end up with unhappy colleagues as well. And it just becomes a very short-term spiral you get into then. So let me shift the pace quick um, and I'm going to ask you some of our kind of a quick fire questions. So I'm curious where you go to for inspiration and to feed your creative brain because you've had a huge amount of kind of a stories and examples. 
in your book, The Human Experience, like where where do you go for inspiration? Yeah, so two two places. Uh, sadly, up until recently, Twitter was a huge place for me. Uh, I had a really well curated list of people that I followed and really interesting things coming through from the likes of Stephen Johnson, Rory Sutherland, you know, people that are just sharing interesting thoughts. So I still think Twitter's a great place for that if you can create it or X, I suppose I need to call it now. Um, the other thing I'm a really strong proponent of is is observation, seeing the world around you. My nan always used to say, you know, why is everyone walking around with their headphones in? Uh, they're just stopping themselves hearing everything. And you do notice it more and more now. You know, our default is to sit on a train, look at your phone, listen to something. And you're shutting yourself off from all this inspiration around you every day. You can sit on a train and just observe the world, observe how people work, look at the adverts, see what kind of things people are uh, talking about you know we have a thing at the foundation which is my company uh every wednesday we all sit around and have lunch together and we all talk about any interesting things that we've seen or heard in that week and there'll be all of us there for an hour so people that are 23 and people that are 53 and everything in between you really just need to open yourself up to observe the world and hear what comes in and then the inspiration becomes quite serendipitous i think it finds you rather than you needing to go and find it so you named your kind of a your kind of a book, the human experience. But what title would you give your biopic or your autobiography? So I guess John's story. What would what would um what title would you give that? <laughs> well, that's such a good question. I feel kind of under quite crushing pressure on that. Uh, do you know? I think I'm not sure there'd be. I mean, I'm from Essex originally, so there might have to be something in there about uh, some kind of Clacton or Essex thing. There's also a thing, I often talk about kind of living in Commuterville, about kind of life in Commuterville. I'm kind of weirdly fascinated by, uh, you know, the kind of commuting life, about kind of small town living, about the arguments that rage about recycling bins uh, and things like that. Oh, the NIMBY, it's not in my backyard. You know, but I think there's a real life around that and you can see everything you need to see. So maybe something like stories from Commuterville or something like that, I might. I might go for, but I don't really need to think about that before I write it. You know? <laughs> I think that you did very well under pressure with that one. Um, that sounds great. And um, I think, I imagine writing a book is quite hard um, and quite time to me, you're obviously uh, leading an organization to your day job. Um, I'm curious, what's the one thing that will always cheer you up? So if you have a busy day, a bad day or whatever, um, a chaotic morning um, with porries in your hair, and um, what's the one thing that would always cheer you up? I, I think uh, music is a really big thing for me. Uh, I think there's certain songs that I know I can put on and just lift my mood. In fact, every single interview I've ever gone to, I've listened to the same song before I've gone into the interview. I've not done I've had interviews for quite a while now. But I just know there's some great songs. There's a song I know as well um, uh, called Turn It Off in the Book of Mormon, which I think is the funniest uh, you know, play I've ever seen. And it's just, and you just can't help but smile while you're singing to it. It's such brilliant writing. So, yeah, I think I think for me, there's kind of certain songs of music that I just think can have such an impact on your on your mood. Um, yeah, so I go with that. Just before we finish up, last one. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self? And um, would they be surprised by, you know, the bio that you have today? Would I be surprised? I think they might be surprised. Uh, but only because I really had no, no, I think they definitely would be surprised because I had no idea what I wanted to do, but also where I grew up, um, no, I didn't know anyone that did this kind of job, this kind of work. I didn't really know these kind of consultants, this kind of life 
existed till I was in my kind of late 20s, really. Um, so I think they'd definitely be surprised because they probably would have never, never um, heard of it. I think, I think my main advice would be just to be try, just try everything. Just try things. You know, you have to just go out and, you know, try and avoid this having a set plan and, and sticking to it. You know, I think the I've learned quite a lot that I've le- the older I've got, I've learned how little I know. But in my twenties, I thought I knew everything, but it turns out I really didn't. And that's come from just trying things, going places, meeting people. You know, having interesting conversations with interesting people. And actually, if you can, actually, that might be my very specific advice: just try and spend your life having interesting conversations with interesting people. I think if you can do that, loads of interesting stuff ends up coming out of that and you'll probably have a good time. But that includes trying lots of stuff as well. Well, I think that's a great bit of advice and a great place to end. And thank you for having such an interesting conversation with me. That's all right. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.